All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We once again are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 tonight. Philippians chapter 1 as we get started. Although questions and answers may take us elsewhere, I expect that they will. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for truth. You are the God of truth. Your spirit is the spirit of truth. And we are here, Father, to worship in spirit and in truth. Father, I thank you for the blessings that we have in a body of believers that are dedicated to the Word of God. I thank you for brothers and sisters that didn't come tonight for the the entertainment or the fun and games or the programs. They came to be fed, Father, and your Word goes forth line upon line and precept upon precept. And uh, we're so thankful that you were so faithful to make this provision again and again. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless our time together encourage us father we thank you in christ's name amen all right we do want to take a few minutes for question and answer the microphone runner is ready to go i have an email we can use as our leadoff question tonight this came oh no i also promised i promised uh mary ellen that she would have our first question tonight all right well then we'll take the email then um bill sent me an email uh as the subject reads i have a question regarding the line of Luke one fifteen, where it reads, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. In Greek, the words for yet or yet in is eki, is eti, ek, and both seem to have a meaning of after. Eti means still, and then uh, ek means origin or from or out of. And uh, so my question is twofold. Uh, number one, when can we say John was filled with the Holy Spirit before or after birth? Um, the answer is before, while still in his mother's womb. The, the eti there speaks of still. And so even though the ek speaks of out of the womb, um, you have to be in the womb to get out of the womb, and it's, it's still while in the womb. And um, so that means he was uh, a spirit and dwelt unbeliever. He's not saved until he believes the gospel. Um, and then number two, could this verse or should this verse be used as evidence in the ongoing debate of when soul life begins. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's a very valid point. Um, not only in Luke 1, well, further down in Luke 1, in fact, yeah, he will uh, be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet, or while still yet in his mother's womb. And so he's not saved at birth, but he is spirit indwelled as an unbeliever in the womb. And uh, that's, that just boggles the mind sometimes. You know, it's like, why did Judas Iscariot, why was he given those miraculous powers that he was given? He was, he was also an unbeliever in that, in that point. So um, that bothers some people because we know that we don't get the Holy Spirit until we're saved, and that's the normal thing. But on an exceptional basis, uh, this is a very unique experience. Later on in the chapter, though, when Elizabeth is talking to Mary, it is also noteworthy that the baby jumps and uh, we're told this um verse 41 when elizabeth heard mary's greeting the viable tissue mass no i'm sorry that's a baby (laughs) the baby in her mother's womb and it says leaped for joy 
Okay? The baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, John actually had the Holy Spirit before Elizabeth at that point. And, uh, and she specifically says it's for joy in verse 44. When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now joy is an emotional response that requires a human soul to, to express. And so no, I, I think this is a marvelous proof text for humanity in the womb. It's not waiting for a breath of life, a nashama, you know, when they exit the birth canal or anything like that. Uh, that this is a, a human being in the, in the womb. And I know that makes me different from Colonel Theme. I used to say there's four things I teach differently than Colonel Theme ever taught. And, uh, but that was years ago. I don't remember the other three. <laughs> okay. um, I'm sure there were four at the time. And, uh, and that's one of them. Because the colonel did, taught that the uh, person doesn't receive the, the actual breath of life until they exit the, the birth canal. So that's, uh, that's a difference on that. So. Anyway, does that answer your question on that? If you want more, there's a lot more. Um, there's actually a, a, I just got a, a fairly new book here called Exegetical Summary, and uh, it's got a, a neat rundown on Eti Ek, on uh, and how it was handled by different translators and different Bible editions and so forth. It's not a common expression. It's found in, in uh, uh, Isaiah, in the Septuagint, a couple other places, but still in before going out is the idea. So anyway, that's the email question. I appreciate that. Uh, other questions tonight? We'll get the microphone over there. Yes, sir? Uh, yes, uh, Second Thessalonians 2.3, please. Second Thessalonians 2.3. 2.3. Okay. Can you go over the Greek for where it says apostasy, where we're looking at it, where it's supposed to be departure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so with respect to the day of the Lord, and uh, verse 1, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That's rapture, right? When Jesus comes to the air, we're gathered together with Him. So you might rephrase verse 1, with regard to the rapture of the church that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so you, if you want to rephrase that, the day of the Lord is the tribulation, the millennium which follows, the, uh, that's the day of the Lord. So uh, with respect to the rapture, don't be scared if you get a letter that says you're in the tribulation. Okay? Because you can't be in the tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you. And that's the, the whole point here in verse 3. For it, that is the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasia comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the Greek text, metis humas exapatese katamedena tropon. And then it says, hati eon me elthe he apostasia unless hey apostasia comes first. And so the Greek noun is apostasia, which is translated as departure. Okay? But if it's transliterated and not translated, then it's rendered as apostasy. You understand the difference between a translation and a transliteration? Yes, but where, where is it showing that it's translated as departure? Because everywhere I've looked, I haven't seen it saying anything about departure. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Every, um, every English Bible since the King James, or most English Bibles since the King James, have used apostasy as their translation. Seven English Bibles before the King James all used departure or departing. And so you can look at Wycliffe, you can look at Tyndale, you can look at Matthew Coverdale, you can look at the Geneva Bible, you can look at the Bishop's Bible, look at all the ones, the English texts prior to King James. Prior to, uh, so for example, Wycliffe is fun to look at. Um, I actually have two. So no man... And they spelled differently in the 1100s, okay? <laughs> okay, or the 1500s. Um, no man deceive you in any manner, but for dissension come first, and the man of sin be shewed the son of perdition. So there's dissension, either departing away or dissension being either a physical departure or a, a uh, spiritual departure. Let me show you the earlier Wycliffe translation. That no man deceive you in any manner, for no but departing away or dissension shall come first. And so that's, the again, the idea of a departure. And so the, uh, Tommy Ice is where I learned this from. He pointed out that seven English translations prior to King James used departure or departing rather than... Um, apostasy. There's Tyndale. Let no man deceive you by any means, for the Lord cometh not, except there come a departing first. And that that sinful man be open, the son of perdition. So that's the idea there. So does that answer what you were asking about? Yes, it does. I'm just trying to figure out whenever I, when I look at there was a, a, a apostasia, uh-huh. it you know, it says a public denial, previously held religious belief. I mean, they, they go through other things, but they don't ever say the departure. Oh, the noun or the verb? Because you have both in the New Testament. And, and sometimes it's used of physical departing. It's used of, of uh, walking up and getting out of a room. If you walk out that door right now, we would use, uh, we would use that verb for departing. And you would have had a departure. We wouldn't say you're in apostasy, we'd just say you left the room. <laughs> and so that's the thing. And that's why apostasy is, you know, it is a departure. It's a departure from sound doctrine. It's a departure from the faith. Anyone that commits apostasy has departed from truth, right? Uh, but but we, use the, uh, we use the metaphoric use so frequently that we oftentimes forget that the term itself can also be used literally, can be used physically. It can be used of a departure to meet the Lord in the air, which I think because of verse 1, you have to view that in the in the context there. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. I'll right, bring the microphone over here, Mr. Benson, and then uh, Mr. Bowes after that. Okay. I think I know the answer, but I want to hear what you have to say about it. Okay. Okay. When the Lord sent up into heaven, He sent a Comforter down, uh-huh. which is the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. Okay. And when Moses up in the mount. Facing God, okay. Now, God, was he down here personally, or was he uh, sending the Spirit down in body form? And that's the same way the Holy Spirit. Is he, uh, I mean, can he be in two places at one time? Oh, sure. The Holy Spirit's omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. I can hear you. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, like the Father is everywhere and the Son is everywhere. 
But when they choose to appear in a, in a theophany on earth, like in a burning bush or in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, then that's a very specific presence that he manifests in a, in a particular place at a particular time. And so the answer is both everywhere and in certain places in special ways. So with Moses uh, on the mountain, the, the Lord descended. That was Jesus Christ, God the Son, who descended uh, typically as the angel of the Lord when he appeared in the Old Testament. Good enough. Okay. He had talked to me about this too. He, he forgot. Um, uh-huh. He wants to know if the Holy Spirit will be residing with Jesus during that thousand year reign. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. And one row in front there. My question today is also about the Holy Spirit in okay. Matthew chapter 3, verse uh, 11. Matthew 3, 11. Um, this, he shall baptize you, so John is speaking, and he says, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Mm-hmm. Um, the use of the word and is, makes the Holy Spirit and fire two different entities. So my question is, what exactly is the fire a reference? Yeah, to? the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire, and... Baptism of fire with reference to the uh, tribulation, the day of the Lord, what's going to usher in the millennial kingdom for the Jewish people, that, uh, that they go through a baptism of fire through their national discipline and, and the wrath of God that comes upon the Jewish people during the, during the, uh, the tribulation. Thank so, you for asking that. This was one I got wrong on my ordination exam, and it's, it's scarred me ever since. I always get nervous when people ask the uh, baptism of fire question. So another question I had uh-huh. is also about um, more like a comment. Um, in Matthew chapter two, there's this story about the wise men coming from the east uh-huh. to to see Jesus, and uh, apparently at some point in time they were following. They kept following the star for a long time, and then they suddenly stopped following the star, and which is when they end up in Herod's palace, mm-hmm. and uh, and then again the angels tells them to depart from there and then so they go a different route and they don't come back to the palace and then Herod ends up killing all those babies. Right. So would it be okay to say that uh, the killing of those babies, all of them less than a year old in Bethlehem was the result of uh, the wise men's unwise work? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you could, I guess make that case. I, 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 I would not make that case. I, I, I think the, um, the wise men followed the star until the star disappeared. I think the star took them to Herod's palace and then it disappeared. And then after uh, they got the, the testimony about Bethlehem, once they learned at Herod's palace that Bethlehem was the location, then the star appeared again and led them to the manger, or led them to the house. Not the manger, but the house in Bethlehem. And so... Um, I think all of that also in the plan of God because he had to be uh, proclaimed by kings. He had to be, I think there was a lot of prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Those babies had to die. There was a prophecy in Jeremiah that spoke of that. Um, also, I think that there had to be the witness that, that Christ had entered into the world. And that's why shepherds had testified to that with the angels, that the Christ was in the world. But then I believe God gave Jesus privacy to grow up. And so in the, in, in, by fleeing to Egypt and the murder of all those babies, 
Satan spent 30 years wondering if, if, if he won, okay? Wondering if, if he was successful, wondering if he had successfully destroyed the seed of the woman, and he never knew. He never knew until the, the baptism of the River Jordan that, uh, that the, the massacre of those babies was not successful, that he had not killed the Christ. And so that, that also, I think, is a, a marvelous provision because it was the wise men that arrived with gold, frankincense, and myrrh that provided for their flight into Egypt, provided for their living expenses, and provided for their... I mean, think about it. I don't know how much cash you have in your pocket right here, right now, tonight. But what you have in your pocket right now, I'm not talking credit cards, I'm talking cash, in your pocket right now, could you flee to a neighboring country and live there two years? All right? And then, and then come back, see? And so God gave, with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, Joseph and Mary were, were, were prepared, and they fled to Egypt. See, and that's, to me that's, that's another neat way that God provides in a real powerful way. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. All right, our cleanup hitter over here. We're going, to be, uh, we're going to cross the aisle and be uh, bipartisan tonight. Okay, those of us on the right want to ask yes. about Hebrews 6.5. 6, I'm sorry, I, I lost it there. What? <laughs> Hebrews, you had a question about? Hebrews 6.5. Hebrews 6.5, okay. <laughs> yeah, this is a warning passage that scares a lot of people. Yeah, so I misunderstood it whenever you read it. Was it 6-5? Tasted yeah. of the powers of the age to come. Yeah, so it says that those once had been enlightened and have tasted of the gift and made partakers and tasted of the good word and then fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repent. Okay, so. Go. <laughs> Explain that. Well, okay. how can you... Okay, so you've fallen away. You have apostasy. You've committed apostasy. You've fallen away. Okay, we have members here have done that. So right. Then, but they were, they came back. They did. Uh-huh. So why couldn't these guys be renewed? They can come back. Anyone can come back. Anyone can uh, can. Any, if you're still physically alive, you have an opportunity to repent and be back to walking in the light again. This has nothing to do with. Um, with losing salvation, you can't. The, in fact, it's making that exact point. It says you can't get saved a second time. How do you get saved a second time? You only get saved once. And so um, the idea here, and, and two, with respect to forgiveness and with respect to things, we'll, we'll spend some time with this because people, the Armenians, love teaching this as a as a way of proving that hey, you can lose your salvation, right? And the text says nothing of the sort. It assumes that you're saved, that you're always going to be saved, right? right. But it, sh- it also shows the, the, the direness of the willful sin for which there are no sacrifices. All right, and so it, it uses that language to show you how serious it is. But it's not something to be scared of. It doesn't, you can't lose your salvation, and we know that. I wasn't concerned. I just don't understand it. It's uh-huh. like, what is it trying to say? Like, is it trying to say you can't be resaved? But right. can't, okay, well, um, so. Okay, think of it this way. Um, Maybe you had, or a person, not you, a, a random person had a very spectacular life as an unbeliever, and then they got saved, okay? And praise be to God, all of that behind them is washed. It's under the blood of the Lamb, okay? Well, and, and we, we can rejoice in that, okay? But then let's say after some time, they, um, they fall into sin, 
Okay? And now they've, they, go, they have some other colorful years. The worst thing, though, is now the judgment is severe. I mean, there was, there was mercy, there was grace, there was a lot of stuff when they had those colorful years in unbelief. But now they're having some spectacular carnality as believers. Okay? What are they going to do? You can't get saved again. You see what I'm saying? And so for a prodigal son to come back is different from an unbeliever coming to faith. Okay? And so in that sense, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the ongoing consequences of our carnality. There's the divine discipline for a believer who should have known better. There's a stricter judgment. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. So it's like this guy he's not going to get the slate wipe clean do-over of getting saved all over again because nobody gets saved all over again. Okay? He now is going to go through the loving discipline of a father who's going to be at work, who's going to discipline, who's going to chastise, who's going to... And, and, and coming out of darkness under those circumstances is, is, is not the instantaneous thing of being saved that first time. Does that make sense? It does. Thanks very much. Okay. And, and that's really as best as I'm going to do right now because I'm, I'm trying to, we're still in chapter one, okay? And I'm trying to, um, there's a warning in chapter two, uh, there's more in chapter three, and all of this leads up to chapter five and up to chapter six, and then there's warnings after that into chapter ten. There's more warning. And I want to make sure there's five warnings all together, that we can teach the five warning passages of Hebrews appropriately. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, uh, that's good. Appreciate those questions. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. We're going to go extra long on our questions tonight. So, uh, I remember last time you were talking about there was no other incarnation of Jesus after he ascended uh, in the New Testament. Right. Um, but then what about Saul, Saul, why have you, why are you persecuting me? The voice from, from heaven where he was speaking directly to him. But then Saul turns and says, uh, who art thou, Lord? So uh-huh. did Saul see him, or is it that it was just a voice and no visual representation? Of as far as we know, it was a voice. Okay. Yeah, as far as we know, it was a voice. Okay. And, and even if it was Jesus, like John saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, that was a vision, he saw him, and then he was caught up to heaven. As far as being an, an incarnation or a presence, I don't believe he can come back to this earth until Second Advent. So he heard, Paul heard his voice and John saw a vision, but, um, but Jesus, the God-man in his body, resurrection body, has not yet stood upon this earth, and I don't think he can until second advent. Yeah. All right, excellent questions tonight. You guys, uh, you guys came prepared, I appreciate that. Let's uh, shift gears then and uh, return to where we left off Sunday morning in uh, Philippians 1, uh, 7 and 8. Remember this? We are getting in touch with our feelings tonight, and we've been doing this now for a couple of classes. We have feelings, and unfortunately, um, the feeling language is found in verse 7 where it shouldn't be. Um, is, it, we do get feeling language, emotions, in verse 8, and that's where it belongs. Uh, verse 8, as for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And the idea of longing for, we know what it means to long. It's, it's somebody you haven't seen in ages 
and you would dearly love to see them again. And the longer that you're apart, the more you long, right? That's just how that works. And uh, so that's emotional. And and the, the Greek language there is emotional. How I long for you all, and it says, with the affection or the tender mercies or the bowels or the uh, kidneys of, of Christ Jesus. We've got the, the splanchnon, we've got the inner organs of, uh, of Christ Jesus there. And it's, it's, again, it's an emotional term. We're talking about the emotions. And because of that, because we have the emotional expressions there in verse 8, I think that it has uh, affected the translation of verse 7 um, I don't see any reason why uh, the, the verb for thinking is translated as feel in verse 7. There's no reason for it. It's used 10 times in Philippians and it never again does it get translated feel. Okay, um, You know, to me feelings, um, they have their place, but uh, we don't want to start there. Okay, It's always dumb when a reporter sticks a microphone in somebody's face on camera and says, you know, uh, you just won the World Series, uh, how do you feel? You know, well, duh, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that how do you feel question is one of the idiot reporter questions. Um, and, it, and it shouldn't be in verse 7. It is only right for me to think this way about you all. Thinking is in accordance with justice. That's what we have here, the righteous thinking. And uh, the dikaios righteousness, the righteous thinking here in verse 7 because I have placed you in my cardia. I have placed you in my heart. The heart is the seat of the intellect, the sensibility, the will. It is the core of who you are. Okay, And cardia is not an emotional term. And uh, that, that confuses people because in English we talk about the heart all the time, right? You're in my heart. You're my sweetheart. You know, things like that. We, uh, we hand out little Valentine's cards in the shape of a heart. And we, 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 we act all emotional about that kind of thing, all right? But cardia is not emotional. Agape is not emotional, okay? It'll have an emotional expression, but primarily agape is a choice. We choose to love. And based upon our choice of agape love, we sacrifice, we give, we do what we do uh, under agape principles. So um, <clears throat> we'll have more to say on that. Uh, in fact, if you, if you struggle with the idea of love, first of all, go to 1 Corinthians 13. We taught that at length in, in love is patient, love is kind, and that whole description of love that's there. And you'll find it's not a Valentine's Day card. Okay, It's not romance. It, uh, that's, that's a different kind of love. If you want to talk about philos or storge or eros or any of the other kinds of love we can but when we're talking about you know the the butterflies in the stomach and ooh that girl is pretty and she smells nice none of that is agape okay that's those are all different kinds of love but uh god so loved the world and and christ so loved the church and husbands love your wives and love your enemies the the agape mandates that we have that's not an emotion, okay? That's, that's a choice, and we operate on that basis. So we'll have more to say on that. In fact, in verse 9, uh, that your agape may abound still more and more, notice, not in uh, feelings and, and, uh, and emotion, but in real knowledge and all discernment. Because love is a choice, and it needs to be shaped by doctrine, by the Word of God.
and we'll deal with that so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So uh, we'll discuss what agape love is. And, and see, here's the thing. Um, lest I come across as unloving or cold and heartless and blah, blah, blah. Um, see, here's the thing. You can have legitimate emotional love and philos and storgos and, and eros and all those other kinds of love if agape is lined up properly to, as, as, a, as a preliminary or a prerequisite, everything else is that much greater. Okay? But we've got to have agape first. That's the first love. That's agape. All right. So, um, as we dealt with it, let me just get ahead to our slide here. I don't like what they did to this, but that's okay. Um, I'm not in charge of this, so we'll just go to there. All right. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking grounded in grace, so his feelings reflect the affection of Christ. Thinking comes first, that's verse 7, and then feelings reflect that thinking. Our feelings are shaped by our thinking, and that's biblical. We want to be thinking biblically so that our feelings are shaped by biblical thinking. Okay, And that will save us every time. If we ever flip that upside down, we're in trouble. If we ever allow our emotion, if we put our emotions in the driver's seat, and then that starts to change how we think, we're doomed. Absolutely doomed. You know, how many times have I counseled a young person? And let me tell you, and it goes both ways, men and women, boys and girls, okay? And they know the doctrine. Oh, but I love her. Oh, but I love him. Okay? You don't understand. We're in love. Okay, I get it. But when the emotions are shaping the thinking, it's upside down. Thinking needs to shape the emotions, okay? Or you're doomed. It, it is just, it's a train wreck the other way. So we have thinking there in verse 7. And we talk about the uh, righteous thinking, righteous judgment, sound judgment, and all the ten uses of phreneo. Write those verses down. Consider that verb phreneo. It's a thinking term. Have this thinking in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, right? Philippians 2, verse 2 and verse 5. Philippians 3, 15. Philippians 3, 19. And all these uses, it's phreneo. Philippians 4, 2. Philippians 4, 10. Twice in verse 10, okay? And it's a thinking verb every time that it's used. 26 times in the New Testament, but 10 times in Philippians alone. It's a very concentrated use in this one book. So uh, we want to let the Word of God shape our thinking. And if we're going to put people in our heart, it's going to be based on righteous thinking. It's not an emotional thing. All right? You can place the Word of God in our heart, Psalm 119. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We can take circumstances to heart. Mary treasured all these things in her heart, it says, when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy in the temple. So there are circumstances we can put in our heart. There's Word of God we can put in our heart. And there are people we choose to put in our heart. And this is what we have here, people. Uh, In this case, Paul had placed the Philippian believers in his cardia. So that, again, not emotions. It is a choice that we make. Now, because of this, because of Paul's righteous thinking, he developed an affectionate longing for the Philippian saints. And that's what he calls God to witness here in verse 8. For God is my witness how I long for you all. The manner that of his longing. 
the manner of his longing. I mean, there's some kind of longing that, that's done in a different way, um, and by different means, for different reasons, okay? And it's not biblical, okay? There's, there's, there's a wrong kind of longing, and we don't want any of that. But there's a right kind of longing, and, uh, and then this reflects the attitude that God himself has. And so he calls God as his witness, how? To the degree, the manner, the means, and the reasons for his longing. And the longing, we're told, is with the affection of Christ. The affection of Christ. And that's what we want. We want to have Christ's affections. We're going to learn about that tonight. What, what are Christ's affections? Okay, um, The affection of Christ Jesus. The very um, affection that he possessed, that he expressed, that he exhibited, that he exemplified, those are his affections. And that's what we want to develop if we're going to be Christ-like, if we're going to be imitators of Christ, that would include his affections as well, would it not? And so, uh, of course. All right. So, um, calling God as a witness, we talked about why God's the only witness, really, for uh, what's on his heart, because only God can look upon the heart. Having placed the Philippians in his heart, Paul calls God to bear witness. God is the only one who searches the heart. And so if that's where somebody is, then God's the only witness you can call uh, to say, look, you're on my heart. Different aspects there. God testifies not only to the reality of Paul's affectionate longing, but to the manner of Paul's affectionate longing as well. That's what we want to talk about tonight. All right, the term for longing, epipatheo, and... I think we looked at all these. Yes, we looked at all these. All right. Uh, the idea is the deer pants for the water brook in the Septuagint of Psalm 42.1 as the deer pants for the water brook. That's the idea of longing. Okay, It's not just a take it or leave it. It's not just a, eh, you know, if I see you again, that'd be kind of nice, you know, but if I don't, oh well, you know. <laughs> okay, you know, I mean, we, we get that. There's people in your past or my past. There's folks that I haven't seen in ages and I'm okay with that. If, uh, if it's ages more before I see him again or whatever, uh, okay, you know. It, it's, not, it's not killing me that I haven't seen him in so long, right? But the idea of longing for somebody, the fact that it has been already, however long it's been is too long, because however long it's been is just really sinking into me that this is a special person. This is, this is a person who helps to define who I am. They're in my heart. They're in my core. They're the core of who I am. And so if there does become another opportunity to see them again, I'm, I want to take advantage of that. How many more may there be? How many more opportunities may there be? You know, uh, Ralph Braun's getting older. Um, is he going to have another trip to Texas? I don't know. Maybe I ought to take a trip to Kansas. If, if, if I'm going to see him again before the, before the rapture, it might not be here in Texas. I may have to drive up there. Okay. And that's, that's what we're talking about, because if someone is at the core of who you are, then we're, if that's the concept you got in your mind, then we're, we're reaching the point here that I think we can understand verse 8 properly. So the idea of longing for, as obedient children, longing for the pure milk of the Word and, and uh, other aspects of longing that we see here throughout the New Testament. Okay? Epipatheo, it's an intensive thirst. Epipatheo. All right. Which gets us now to what I really want to just lock in on here tonight is the idea of affections. Okay? And uh, the Greek noun, it's a neuter noun called splanknon. And uh, 
S-P-L-A, uh, gamma chi becomes an N, N-C-H-O-N, splanchnon. And, um, and it speaks to your feelings. It speaks to your emotions. Okay, there's no question. This is an emotional term. This, respect, this refers to something you are affectionate for, you are tender towards. It's translated uh, affection in most cases. Sometimes it's translated heart, but not the cardia heart, the emotional heart. Okay. Uh, sometimes it's translated tender mercy, such as Luke one seventy eight, or even intestines. Okay. Let's start with that. I like to get gruesome. Acts one eighteen. Okay. Acts one eighteen, and we'll show you the literal use of uh, intestines. So in Acts 1, we're talking about Judas Iscariot, right? And Peter stands up and he's preaching in the upper room. About 120 people are there. And he says, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. All right, and so there's scripture that's going to be fulfilled, a prophecy, specifically a Davidic prophecy, that's uh, going to be fulfilled here. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with a price of his wickedness. Remember, they gave him 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ? And then he wouldn't keep the money. He, uh, he tried to return it, and they couldn't keep the money because it was blood money. So they ended up buying a field with it. And uh, wouldn't you know, you know, again, that also fulfills prophecy in, in, in different ways. So it's kind of fun. Um, and then it goes on to say, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. Uh, if you read the account in the, in the Gospels, he, he went away and he hanged himself. Okay, And so he's hanging there by the neck until dead, except uh, as he's dying or right after he dies or at some point in the hanging process, the rope breaks or something else happens and he falls asunder, falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his splanchnon gushed out. His splank, well, plural would be splankna, but his intestines gushed out. Okay? Isn't that gross? All right. Well, yeah, yeah, I did that. You're welcome. I should have preached this Sunday before a potluck. That would have been kind of real appetizing say okay now let's go have burgers um so this is this is the use okay and and what we need to get across is that that in the ancient world to the hebrews and to the greeks okay both in the the hebrew language and in the greek language the idea of of intestines was an expression was an idiom for um emotions okay for your passions, for your loves and your fears and your okay, and we don't really have that anymore. We we tend to use heart maybe as the only idiom there of uh, calling somebody your sweetheart. You wouldn't I wouldn't call Sharon my sweet liver or my you know my sweet colon. Okay, it, this just doesn't work in English, but in in Greek and in Hebrew both guts. Where your was was your emotions? That's the seat of your passion. That's where uh, you know sometimes bile would arise. And sometimes we talk. We do use. Here's, here's an expression. 
Sometimes we talk about somebody that's having a visceral re- uh, reaction to something. Okay? We will still use the word visceral as an adjective or an adverb. We'll talk about a visceral relaxation, and that's the closest that English comes now to retaining that sense of the, of the viscera, of the, of the internal organs, the, the entrails, being a, an emotional thing. Okay? But the idiom is all throughout the Bible. And we're going to see several uses of that here tonight. In fact, everything on the screen uh, from um, the splank non, or the verb is splank needs am I. Splank needs am I. There's, there's the verb, okay? So the noun is splank non, and it comes from the verb splank needs am I right there. And the verb is number 4697. So the noun has 11 uses, the verb has 11 more uses, and altogether we've got 22 things to look at. In, uh, in the New Testament. But we're going to find that it speaks to the emotions, it speaks to the feelings, okay? And whereby very quickly we can be thankful that our feelings are under the control of our thinking, when our thinking is shaped by doctrine, when our thinking is righteous thinking that's, that's been molded by the Word of God. So uh, those are the illustrations there. All right. Um, so we've seen Acts one eighteen. Uh, we can look back to Luke one seventy eight and see uh, this case, and and really, I think Luke uses it differently than Paul, uh, although he does translate it here tender mercies in Luke one seventy eight. Remember, Luke was a doctor, and so it's not really surprising that he uh, would use a term like this uh, for the intestines bursting forth. Uh, but in Luke one seventy eight. In uh, Zechariah's prophecy, once he gets to talk again, <laughs> Zechariah, uh, he had nine months where he couldn't say a word because he doubted the angel. And so uh, his wife got to hog the whole conversation that whole time. But then finally, uh, the baby gets born and he writes the note out and says his name is John. And then he gets his voice back. And then he gets to prophesy. And, and this whole song is just beautiful. It's a prophetic psalm. And uh, in the process of this, um, celebrating the fact that the Old Testament is being fulfilled, (laughs) okay? The Old Testament is being fulfilled. God is among us and the Christ has been born. And um, so verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare His way. He knows that His son is John the Baptist. His son is the forerunner of of the Christ. And uh, you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John has to become an evangelist to prepare the Jewish people for the the coming of the Christ. And then it says, because of the splanknon, the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay? There's a whole realm of doctrine there, but those are the emotions. God sent His Son for um, thinking reasons, and God sent His Son for feeling reasons. This passage speaks of the feeling reasons. That God uh, was, was more than just, you know, intellectually, academically looking around and saying, well, okay, uh, fallen humanity needs a Redeemer and creating a plan and and sending the virgin-born son to be the redeemer. 
He, he thought that all out, of course, but he also felt it. He felt the need. He felt the compassion. The father felt the need to send his son. And uh, that's why he's the sunrise from on high. This is why the dawning of, of uh, salvation came upon humanity. Anyway, there was an emotional reason why the Father sent the Son. And it's not, it gets preached that way in John 3.16 and it bugs me to death. Preach it in Luke 178. Don't preach it in John 3.16. Okay? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's His thinking. But here is His feeling. Here it's because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the splanknon, the emotions of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Okay, So don't preach John 3.16 as an emotional love, but preach this as an emotional love. Okay, They're both true. It comes here though, not in John 3.16. Alright. So God Himself has splanknon. God Himself has emotions. He has feelings. He has compassion. God is an emotional God. We're in His image. It's no wonder that we are emotional humans. Can you imagine... How would we be emotional if God was not emotional? Because we're in His image. See? And I realize that some people aren't comfortable with that. In fact, there's whole branches of theology that are written so as to explain away all of God's emotions and say, well, that's just anthropopathism. It's not really true. You know, there's, there's, there's expressions about God's wrath and God's anger and God's jealousy, but they're not really true. Those are just words that God uses to help us understand. Well, I'm telling you, they help us understand something, and the words mean what they mean. To me, it's much simpler to say God Himself has intellect, He has sensibility, and He has will, which means that God Himself has emotions. Okay? That's the easier way to handle it. So, um, let's, uh, all those examples of the verb all center on Christ. So, let's start there. I'm going to take the slide a little bit backwards. Let's start with Matthew 9.36. Let's focus on Jesus to start with, and then we'll back up and we'll get the noun. You notice that? When we're talking about the noun up here, this is the noun, and what are we talking about? Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 John, okay? We're talking about Paul's epistles or the New Testament epistles, right? Paul or John in the epistles. That's the noun, okay? But when we're talking about the verb... Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. Okay? When we're talking about the verb, the usage is, is centered on the Synoptic Gospels. And we're going to see it's, I think it's every time. I think it's Jesus every time. That becomes interesting. All right. Are you with me? Did I lose anybody? All right. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. See, if you think emotions are only for the weak sister, right? Think again. Okay? Because Jesus is not a weak sister. Jesus is not an emotional revolt of the soul. Okay? Well, you know, that's the difference between men and women. Don't even go there. Okay? And we can talk in broad generalities all day long. Let's just stay with the scriptures. Okay? Um, because Jesus is expressing, is expressing the feelings. He's expressing the emotions in these, in these passages. All right, Matthew 9, 36. Um, and what's he doing? 
leading up to this. He's teaching. Uh, verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What a ministry, okay? Things are going great. He's teaching, he's healing, he's performing the miracles, the, the, he's proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. You talk about good news, the kingdom is at hand. And uh, then it says in verse 36, and seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. That's our verb of splank needs am I. And this is a verb that uh, we better get a handle on very quickly because uh, I think it's a weakness in certain uh, ways for doctrinal churches, for some believers in some ways that think that every answer is always intellectual. Every answer is always doctrine. Okay, Get doctrine and grow up. And sometimes they've got doctrine and they are growing up, but in the meantime it hurts. And uh, they don't need another Bible class. They, they could use some compassion. Okay? And notice the compassion is not instead of Bible class, it's after Bible class, but he's giving them both. The teaching in verse 35 and the, and the uh, guts in verse 36. Okay? The splank needs am I, the emotions in verse 36. So seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They're in, they're in rough shape. Okay? And yeah, he's teaching them. But, you know, he's on an itinerant ministry and he's moving through the various villages in Galilee and he's teaching them and they're eating up, they're thankful for it. But he's going to leave town and here they are and do they have shepherds? Well, they got Pharisees. They've got scribes. They've got synagogue officials. They've got, uh, they got teachers that don't teach like he does. So he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. We usually cite this with, you know, like in, a, in an evangelism context, right? Like, man, this world is just full of unbelievers. We need more evangelists to go out there and give the gospel to unbelievers. Really? I think the, the idea of, of in this context is distressed believers that need a shepherd. They're already sheep, but they're sheep without a shepherd. They need to be fed, they need to be cared for, they need to be tended and taught and cared for with compassion. So therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. And so that takes you to chapter 10 and He picks out 12 apostles. And that's the call of the apostles. So there's Jesus in His affection. Over to chapter 14, more affection. And you'll note the, the, um, the pity or the, the, the emotions is driven by what He saw. He saw that they were distressed, that they were dispirited. He observed that. He was sensitive to that. He acknowledged it for what it was. He didn't blame them for what it was, or he didn't say it shouldn't be that way, or he didn't say, come on, grow up and, and get over it. It is what it is. And he had compassion for them in that circumstance. Okay. Uh, chapter 14 and verse 14. Ignore that little A. Don't, that, that A is not for you, that A is for me. Okay, 1414, that's just my little clue to remind me that I don't have to read Mark 634 because that's parallel to Matthew 14, 14. All right. Um, 
John the Baptist gets uh, murdered in this first part of the chapter. His head is delivered on a platter. And well, this is a gruesome class tonight. I'm sorry about that. We got a beheading here now. And um, so the body got buried. I don't know what they did with the head. And then they went and they reported it to Jesus. And so Jesus heard about John. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Jesus did a lot of praying. A lot of times he just got away. Sometimes a pastor needs to go away. Okay? Play Scrabble for a week. <laughs> and, uh, and the people heard of this. They followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. Matter of fact, there's no mention of teaching doctrine, but there it is. So he saw a large crowd, he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. And so there's the emotions, there's the feelings, there's the recognition. And, uh, and it's emotional, purely emotional. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, the hour is already late, so send the crowds away. They weren't exactly having the same uh, splanknizomai that Jesus was having here, <laughs> right? You get the idea here? They, uh, they did not have the compassion he did. Okay, And that's important, because what are we talking about in Philippians? Paul talks about having the affection of Christ Jesus. That, that he is longing for the saints with the affection of Christ Jesus. These guys don't have it yet. So uh, this place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You guys, you give them something to eat. Now this too, I think, we're continuing on in the expression of compassion, in the expression of his feelings. Okay, And it's not teaching them a Bible class, it's feeding them. Uh Uh-oh, sorry. Here we go. All right. And so you give them something to eat. Well, we don't have enough. We just have five loaves and two fish. And of course we know the miracle, and he feeds them all and has leftovers. Okay? What I think is interesting though is that he sees a deficiency and he feels because of that deficiency and based on that feeling he then remedies that deficiency. And that's the example of our Savior. All right, next chapter, chapter 15, verse 32. The... um, Again, um, there's large crowds. And I went up to the mountain. He was sitting there in verse 29. Large crowds came to him in verse 30, bringing with them those that were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. They laid them down at his feet. He healed them. Uh, The crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing. They glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people. Right? Here we go again. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. Enough already. Uh, Because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. So the disciples said to him, well, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Well, wait a minute. You guys weren't paying attention in chapter 14? Okay. This is only 4,000 this time. That should be easier. How many loaves do you have? Well, we've got seven. That's more than we had before. 
We only had five when we fed 5,000. Now we've got seven. And we've only got 4,000 mouths to feed. So having done the greater, do you think I can do the lesser? <coughs> that's, that's the off fortiori principle. And uh, yet they seem to be struggling with this. All right, so he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, started giving them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people. And again, there's leftovers. Seven large baskets full of leftovers. About 4,000 men besides the women and the children. All right, compassion. Chapter 18, more compassion. 1827. Okay, here's, this is not an example of Jesus. This is... uh, the slave that can't repay. He has a debt of $20 million or whatever it is. It's a, it's a monster debt. And he prostrates himself before the Lord and says, have patience with me. I will repay you. And the Lord felt compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. And then we know the, what happens next, right? He goes to his fellow slave who owes him, you know, a buck seventy-five, you know, something tiny in comparison. He's just been forgiven this monster thing, $20 million or whatever, this huge amount, he's just been forgiven, now he's going to turn to his fellow slave and start choking him for this tiny little thing. But in the process of the parable we have the use of splank needs of my there, that the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. There was no logical reason to do it, there was no intellectual reason to do it, but there was an emotional reason. Felt bad for the guy. Felt compassion released him of the debt. Chapter 20 and verse 34. And uh, here's these two blind men crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And um, Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do to you? They said, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. And so moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes immediately and they regained their sight. And followed him. So those are the Matthew usages. I'm out of time. Uh, Mark, um, in Mark 6:34 and Mark 8:2, we've got repeats of the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000 story. But there's a new story in Mark 9. Right, real quickly, Mark 9:22. We started two minutes late, didn't we? So I can go two minutes long. Mark 9:22. Uh, so um, yeah teacher I, my son is a, a demoniac and your disciples are useless um, can you help in any way and, uh, and it's interesting because uh, Jesus says well how long has this been happening to him well from childhood uh, and there's an idiom there ek, eti ek similar to the eti ek we were looking at earlier um, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can, if you can do anything, splank needs of us and help us. Take pity on us and help us. Be merciful. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And so the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, sort of. Okay? I do believe. Help my unbelief. Okay? You ever believe and disbelieve at the same time? Because you want to believe and you do a little, but you also disbelieve a little, maybe a little more. Okay, 
And so the same time that you're believing, you're also unbelieving. That's biblical. Okay? And uh, it's a beautiful passage. All right, well, we've got three in Luke, but we'll get to that when, uh, Sunday morning. Lord willing and rapture pending, because I think this is important. And then once we go through all these examples of Jesus, and we see how, what an emotional guy he was, then we'll be able to come back to Paul's, gospel, uh, Paul's epistles, and we'll see the use of the noun, the splanknon. And we're going to see the application. What are the affections of Christ? And how do we live them out? How do we express them? How do we make sure that our affections are shaped by our biblical thinking and not the other way around? Okay? So, Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your grace and mercy. Um, Father, I just thank you for um, brothers and sisters that are hungry for truth. I thank you for our visitors here tonight, for uh, your faithfulness in their life. And Father, just look forward to seeing how you uh, provide and how you lead and how you supply. And Father, uh, I am just so thankful that uh, this lampstand is a place where the truth goes forth and that we can love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that uh, we recognize that our thinking is transformed by your word and the transformed thinking then is expressed with legitimate feelings, Father, with appropriate, legitimate, emotional applications. And so uh, teach us what these are about, Father. We can live a life that imitates our Savior. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.